Today I would like to return to our study that we had been engaged in for several months and uh, took a few weeks off for other things. And uh, that study, of course, as you know, is entitled The Fundamentals of Forgiveness. And I readily admit that uh, for the first beginnings of this entire series, we've been dealing primarily with the whole matter of sin, our sin. And I hope that has not been tedious for you, because it is, believe it or not, a large part of what the Bible deals with. It is what Jesus came to deal with. But we've been dealing with sin. For instance, under our first subheading, our our major heading has been the essence of forgiveness. And under that, our first subheading was the source of our need for forgiveness. And we saw from the scriptures that Jesus taught that it was sin. He came to forgive sin. So that is the source of our need for forgiveness. And then under the second Uh, subheading, we saw the sin which needs to be forgiven. And that means that we kind of dealt with a definition from the Scriptures regarding sin. We saw from 1 John 3, 4 that sin is lawlessness, a breaking of the Ten Commandments. From James 4, 17, that sin is doing the wrong thing when you know to do the right thing. And then from Romans 14 and verse 23, sin is whatever violates your faith. So focusing on Christians, those of us who have been saved and have experienced the grace of God, even though we know we have this grace of God, we still sin. That's contrary to our faith contrary to what we know to be true. In the face of grace and mercy from God, we still sin. So we made the point that everyone's a sinner, even Christians. But that doesn't give us license to go on sinning. We are to fight against it. As the Scripture says, mortify the sin in your bodies. Put it to death. But in that, we also made the point that that doesn't mean that we should go around morbid. We should have the joy of forgiven sins. Now from there, still under the major heading, the essence of forgiveness, after seeing the source of our need for forgiveness and the sin which needs to be forgiven, we began to look at the start on the road to forgiveness. And we dealt with this about three or four weeks ago, I guess it was. And as we began, I made the point that sin affects you. Sin changes you. Sin leaves scars in your life and marks in your brain. You remember the things that you do. And prior to salvation, some people have done some pretty bad things. There are some of us even here in this room today who have had some very sinful times in our lives, be it alcohol, drugs, some women 
who have been saved have had abortions. Imagine that. Does that ever leave someone? Some people have committed heinous crimes, murder, adultery, all kinds of things. Some of you have heard, no doubt, of the infamous Son of Sam. Remember him from the 70s? He went around shooting people and murdered six people in New York. His name is actually David Berkowitz. And David Berkowitz is serving a life sentence in prison. But did you know that not too long ago he was saved? And that some people that some of you have heard of, good people, have gone to talk to this man and genuinely believe that he's been saved. He wants nothing to do with parole because he realizes that he's unworthy. He realizes the heinousness and the wickedness of his crimes. And he knows he's not worthy of getting out of prison. He doesn't deserve it. He deserves death. He deserves hell. But by the grace of God, he was saved. Imagine living with that. But all of us have these scars. But the point is that no matter how bad a sinner you may have been in your life, Forgiveness is there through Christ. And the next heading that we will take up, if the preacher is able to get through this message today, we will turn from looking at the essence of forgiveness to the existence of forgiveness. But I assure you, as we have already seen countless times already in this series, existence of forgiveness is real. Christ died to forgive sins. But let's pick up where we left off now. Understanding that when God begins to deal with a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, something changes regarding his sin. Something changes with his mind and his outlook at sin. It's not that it gets better. Actually, it gets worse. He begins to see his sin for what it is against a holy and a righteous God. He begins to see himself or herself as a sinner and unworthy and worthy only of judgment, even as we read from David's Psalm 51. You're righteous when you judge. I deserve it. And God begins to bring to people's mind all these sins that they have had in their lives. And instead of disregarding them, discounting them, ignoring them, all of a sudden, they become that huge burden that we saw on the back of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. How can I get rid of my sin? My sin, as David said, is ever before me. What can I do? So God starts to do things in people's hearts and minds to deal with their sin. And I told you that I had four areas that I wanted to bring and we only got to deal with the first two. And I remind you of them. 
The first one was the guilt produced by your sin. All of a sudden, you start to feel guilt from your sin. Now you remember in the book of Romans in chapter 1, Paul speaks of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That's what people do all the time. They suppress the truth of their wickedness and sin and God's judgment upon them. But all of a sudden, it's like it springs out. They can't suppress it anymore. And it springs out and it produces within them guilt. Turn with me, if you would, please, to the Gospel of John and chapter 16. John's Gospel, chapter 16. I'm not going to completely go over everything that we dealt with, but I do want to point out to you that this is what Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would do. John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That is the Holy Spirit. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. If you're feeling pain and guilt over your sin, good. It means the Holy Spirit is convicting you concerning sin, the righteousness of Christ, and your impending judgment. The worst thing in the world that can ever happen to a people, to a nation, to a church, is if God leaves them alone. We want the convicting power of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women. Even in church, may the Holy Spirit convict us of our sins and the things that we don't do, that we should. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit producing guilt in the hearts of sinners, recognizing their sin. And this we saw again in that passage that we read from Psalm 51. When David said over and over, it's my transgression. It's my sin. It is my job to point out to you the fact that we're all sinners. And I'm going to show you that a little bit more in a few moments. But I want to stress again that I'm not pointing my fingers at you Because I know well my own sin. My sin. My transgression. I've sinned against you, God. That's what you need to think about. That's what each one of us needs to keep before us. That each one of us is guilty. When God begins to deal with someone, his sin causes guilt. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Second one, the guilt produced by our sin. And the second one, the fear produced by our sin. When I say fear, I don't mean just fear of getting caught. I mean the fear of God. You remember what happened 
when Adam and Eve fell, Adam and Eve sinners, the first ones who fell, did not obey God, took of the fruit of the tree, ate and fell into sin. What is the first thing that they did when God came looking for them in the garden? They ran and hid. They hid themselves for fear. You know, you've sinned and you know that God knows you've sinned. And when God's dealing with someone, it produces fear of God. Look at Genesis chapter 42 very, very quickly. We touched on this. It's the account of Joseph's brothers. You remember what Joseph's brothers did? They sold him into slavery to Egypt. Joseph, in the providence of God, comes to be the second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And everyone comes to him for grain and food. There's famine. So his brothers come before him. And he knows who they are, but they don't know who he is. You know why? Because he wouldn't have looked like himself. I mean, the Egyptians painted themselves. They painted on eyebrows. He would have had all this fancy Egyptian clothing. So they didn't recognize him. And he treats them harshly and threatens to imprison them. And look at verse 21. Then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They knew what they did. Even though years had gone by, years, they were still afraid. And when something went wrong, they knew it was God's judgment for their sin. Some of you have committed sin years and years ago. And you've never confessed it. Years and years prior. And you've never known the forgiveness of God for your sin. But sin, when God is dealing with you, produces guilt. I know I'm guilty. And sin then from that guilt produces fear. I fear the wrath of God. Now, if you would please turn to Jeremiah chapter 44. Jeremiah chapter 44. As we turn from considering the guilt produced by our sin, and the fear produced by our sin. Today we pick up with number three, the remorse produced by our sin. The remorse or the sorrow produced by our sin. This uh, has an Old Testament ring to it. If you would look down to verse 7 of Jeremiah 44. Now then, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, why are you doing great harm to yourselves so as to cut off from you man and woman, child and infant, from among Judah, leaving yourselves without remnant, provoking me to anger with the works of your hands, burning sacrifices to other gods in the land of Egypt, 
where you are entering to reside so that you might be cut off and become a curse and a reproach among the nations of the earth. Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers, the wickedness of the kings of Judah, and the wickedness of your wives, your own wickedness, and the wickedness of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? So what's God doing? He's simply saying, gosh, you guys just keep going on and on with your sin. Sinners, and you just keep committing the sins even of your fathers. But then he says in verse 10, but they have not become contrite even to this day, nor have they feared nor walked in my law or my statutes, which I have set before you and before your fathers. Do you see that word contrite? They have failed to be contrite. They have failed to be sorrowful or to have any sense of guilt or from that guilt, remorse. There's no Sorrow, as they continued in their sins, they were not remorseful. Look at Isaiah chapter 66, the very last chapter in Isaiah. Here is what God desires. Verse 2, For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord, but to this one I will look. In all the created universe, in all of the things, in all of men, this is the one that God will look to. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Now that's a, that's a whole sermon right there. It's even broken down into three parts. Humble, contrite in spirit, trembles at my word. But this is the one that God looks to. One who recognizes his own sin, senses his own guilt, fears God, and feels remorse humbled, who is contrite before God. And notice his word. Keep that in mind. And I remind you again that this is very similar to what David said in Psalm 51, where he said, A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When God is dealing with a man, when God is dealing with a woman, when God is dealing with a boy or a girl, they will not only have guilt over their sin, fear God over their sin, but they will be sorrowful for their sin. Let's bring this forward into the New Testament. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. And immediately you will recognize that as being what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 
Now here's what Jesus says. He opened his mouth and he began to teach, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love that text because it tells us right off the bat that there's life after death. Kingdom of heaven. But notice the next verse. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, when you look at that verse, what do you normally immediately think of? Well, you think of someone who is mourning over perhaps the death of a loved one. And you think, wow, Jesus is saying that blessed are those who are going through difficult times and mourning. Maybe the Romans just killed somebody's husband or kid and they're blessed are those who are mourning. You really think that's what Jesus is talking about? It is not. I assure you what our Lord is talking about. Because people all over the world mourn. Right now, how many millions of people are mourning the death of a loved one? Somebody died yesterday. Somebody died this morning. Somebody died a few days ago. Somebody even died a couple of weeks ago. They're still mourning. And who does that? Everybody, even Muslims, even members of cults, members or people who would call themselves atheists still mourn over the death of a loved one. Do you think Jesus is telling them, don't worry about it, you'll be comforted? Because many of those that I've just mentioned are never going to be comforted. They are going to spend eternity in hell unless they repent and come to Christ, saved by His grace. Otherwise, many people who are this very day mourning the death of a loved one will experience the judgment of God and will not be comforted because there is no comfort in hell. You remember that passage in Luke that we looked at many times where Jesus speaks of the death of the rich man and Lazarus. And what does he say to the rich man who cries out for mercy? Remember, in your life you had all these, but now Lazarus is being what? Comforted. Comforted. Jesus is not talking about just simple mourning over the death of someone. He's talking about the mourning of over sin. Sin in the nation of Israel. Those of us who mourn over the sin in America. So rampant in our day. Escalating beyond our wildest dreams. Even today. But more than even that. Mourning their own Sin. This is a sorrow produced by sin that Jesus is talking about. And what he says is, you will be comforted. Because when the Spirit of God is dealing with a man, when the Spirit of God is dealing with a, a woman or a boy or a girl, they will become sorrowful 
And yes, indeed, in time, sorrowful for the sin of the nation, but more importantly and more immediately, they will feel sorrow for their own sin. And Jesus says, for them, there's comfort. Because when you are saved by His grace, when your sins are forgiven, you will be comforted in this life and in the next. Oh, that indwelling sin, that besetting sin, that we mourn over, we sorrow over day by day. Oh, God, why again today did I sin? Forgive me, oh, God, I'm sorrowful. I mourn over my sin. That person, I say, will be comforted in the life to come. Now there is a very, shall I say, specimen text that deals with that, with this whole matter. If you would please turn now to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 as we see sorrow for sin leading to repentance and salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Here Paul begins in verse 1, speaking to them, and he says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Another sermon. Another text that you could really open up and sink your teeth into. But he tells them to be cleansed from all sin and from all unrighteousness and to perfect their holiness in the fear of God. But now, if you would please, skip down to verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, I now rejoice. Let's stop right there. What's he talking about? He says, though I caused you sorrow by my letter. I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians before we go on a little bit further here. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As many believe that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he's referring to what he wrote here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, He's chiding them for their sin. By the way, what did he do in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1? Chiding them for their sin. So he didn't stop. Here in verse 1 of chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. 
you have become arrogant and have not, what? Mourned. Instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Powerful stuff. Condemning this one who is committing actually incest condemning this immorality in the church powerfully. I've delivered him to Satan. Get him out of your assembly. That's church discipline. Churches used to do that. They seldom do anymore. This is a serious matter. And it is to be dealt with with by the body. And so Paul chided this congregation and this man specifically by what he says in 1 Corinthians, so that, according to many, what he's saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, when he says, I caused you sorrow by my letter, they're referring to what happened after they received that letter. That obviously, when he preached about this to them in his letter, to get that man out, it caused regret and sorrow. Going on to verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You see the difference? Some people go, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, maybe that they got caught. And but what Paul is saying that I'm not sorry that I caused you sorrow because the sorrow that was caused to you was a sorrow that leads to repentance. We have in churches today numbers of people who go, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sin. It's like when a little kid disobeys and you tell, now say you're sorry. And they go, sorry. What does that mean? Well, you know exactly what it means. Nothing. But the sorrow that was produced in this, perhaps, man or in this church was a sorrow that led to repentance. It was genuine sorrow. It was genuine remorse. 
And obviously the man repented and turned from his sin. That's the next thing we're going to see. But the first thing it produced was sorrow leading to repentance. Sorrow over sin is not a bad thing. And how does that happen if the sin is not pointed out? Paul had the courage, the fortitude, and the right biblical attitude to write to them to point out their sin, the sin that was taking place. He didn't go, oh no, if I mention this, maybe they'll be offended. Well, I better not bring this up. But he cared about that church. He cared about the holiness in that church. And he dealt with the sin that was there. Wrote it down. Sent them a letter. And said, deal with this. This, my friends, to you, is what needs to happen for forgiveness. I have not in any way attempted to hide the fact that we're dealing with the whole matter of forgiveness of sin. The series is the fundamentals of forgiveness. And we've spent the first nine messages dealing with sin that needs to be forgiven. And that forgiveness is essential for your salvation. If your sins are not forgiven by Christ, you will not go to heaven. If your sins are not forgiven by Christ, you will go to hell. It's clear. It's plain. It's fundamental. And here, the Apostle Paul pointedly preached to them regarding sin. Sin that was in their congregation. Sin that had to be dealt for. And it produced remorse for that sin which led to repentance. Then how is it that churches today avoid doing exactly what Paul did? Churches today and pastors today avoid mentioning sin let alone dealing with it in their own congregations. They don't want to offend anybody. If I tell sister so-and-so she shouldn't be living with that man that isn't her husband, I'll offend her, and she might leave. And she's got a lot of money. She puts a lot in the offering. I don't want to lose that. I better not say anything. And then if she leaves, it'll offend so-and-so and sister-brother and so-and-whoever, her friends, and they'll leave in good grief. Who will we have left? So rather than dealing with sin, they let it fester and go on and get worse. And what is the result? No sorrow over sin, which leads to repentance which leads to salvation. So how can churches not only not deal with sin in their own congregation, according to the Scriptures, but how can churches not even preach about sin, that people will therefore not feel any 
fear of God or guilt or remorse that would lead them to salvation. We have a fundamental flaw in the average church today. Their unwillingness to deal with sin leads to a lack of sorrow, a lack of repentance, and a lack of salvation, no matter how many numbers they may show. And yet that is what we face. This is what we are gathering together on Wednesday night and praying for. That men would feel sorrow for their sin and repent and be saved by God. That men would desire the glory of God in the light of their own humility, contriteness, and sorrow over their sin. We seek to elevate God, not man. And yet churches today have it backwards, and they refuse to do it. You cannot accomplish the salvation of men and women without pointing out the fact that they are sinners and that they need to repent from their sin. And all of this leads to our last point, our last one. Guilt produced by our sin, fear produced by our sin, remorse produced by our sin, and penitence produced by our sin. Penitence means that you repent. You repent from your sin. It's right here in this text. We'll look here at what is said. We see right here in verse 9 that I rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So you see, sorrow here produced repentance. Metanoia is the Greek word. It really means a change of mind. And that change of mind is towards your sin. And because your mind changes to your sin, your life changes to your sin. You see it for what it is. Sin against a holy God. And you then turn from it. You turn from your sin. And you turn to Christ. This is what happens in the life of one that God is dealing with. He sees his sin for what it is. And he feels guilt. He feels fear. He feels sorrow, and that leads to repentance. A turning from it. A turning from the sin. This is starting down the road to forgiveness. God dealing with you and dealing with your sin. Again, for whatever reason, Preachers today don't want to say, repent. 
Even some good men say, oh, no, 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 no. We, we live by grace. It's grace now. You don't have to repent. That was, that was before. It's grace. We, live, we want you to have the grace of God, and, and, and you don't need to repent. Really? What did Jesus say about that? Look at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. First of all, we have here John the Baptist. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of, oh, just be nice. No, John the Baptist appeared preaching in the wilderness a baptism of repentance. For what? The forgiveness of sins. What is this series dealing with? Forgiveness of sins. Here's John the Baptist. Repent! For the forgiveness of sins. Unless you think it was only John the Baptist. Look down just a little bit. To uh, several verses later. We have now in verse uh, 14. Now after John had been taken into custody. Jesus came into Galilee. Preaching the gospel of God. Saying the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Love one another. Be good out there. Be kind. He preached, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. Have that change of mind that brings about a change of your life. See what you are as a sinner before God. Understand that you are under the judgment of God and turn from that and be saved. Penitence produced by our sin as God deals with men and women. Jesus came with this message, repent. And I say to you on the authority of the word of God, it is still to be the message of the church to men and women. Repent, turn from your sins and be saved. Yes, I know you can't repent unless God does something in your heart first. But we still call on men to repent. It is what Jesus did And it is what we do. Listen to his own words. As he says in Luke chapter 5. The whole reason that he was here. Luke chapter 5 and verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. That's why I've come. To call sinners to repentance. Have you heard that call in your life? I hope you have. As I said before, the worst thing that could happen is you have not felt the working of the Holy Spirit. You do not fear God. You are not guilty. You are not sorrowful. That's the worst thing that could happen. I hope you are. I hope that God is dealing with you. I want to close this morning by looking at a demonstration of all we've been seeing. We've touched on this passage, but I invite you to turn there again. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is where we'll pull up today.
a demonstration, I say, of what we have been seeing regarding this whole matter of when God is dealing with someone over their sin. Now, we first note that in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit had been poured out. First thing that happens, Acts chapter 2. Peter is emboldened. He gets up and he begins to preach. And what does he preach? He preaches from the Scriptures, from the Word of God. And what else does he say? Verse 29, I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. And so because he was a prophet and knew God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. You see, he's using the scriptures and showing that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, promising to have one to sit on his throne for all eternity. He spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which you are all witnesses, or we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore... Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. What is he doing? He's using the scriptures to point out their sin. Just as Paul did when he wrote, to the church of Corinth about this one. Get him out. He's a sinner. And the other areas which he had to deal with with that church and with other churches, pointing out their sin, dealing with their sin. Peter is preaching the first sermon in the church era, saying to those before him, you crucified Christ. You're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty. Now, it's probably not the case that many that were there before Peter that day actually wielded the club or the hammer that drove the spikes into the wrists and the feet of our Lord and raised him up on that cross before men. It's not perhaps likely that the one who shoved the spear into the side of our Lord was there before Peter, but it could be. The fact of the matter is, though, they knew that they were all guilty. Perhaps many of them were there before Pilate and cried, Crucify him! Away with him! Crucify him! Perhaps some of those were there. Perhaps a lot of them were there. But I'll tell you who was there for sure. A lot of people who had indifference over what happened with Jesus indifference to what took place in the crucifixion of our Lord and their sins drove him to the cross. And so Peter says to them, you're guilty. You're guilty. And what is the response? When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart 
and said, Peter, and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Here's guilt over sin, fear of God from their sin, remorse from their sin, and penitence for their sin. What shall we do? And what does Peter say? Repent and be baptized. Be saved by the grace of God. Have your sins forgiven. This is a picture of what God does when He deals with men. The Word is preached. The Holy Spirit takes the Word, pierces their hearts, and brings about sorrow that produces repentance. A willingness to turn from their sin. And many thousands were added to the church that day. Isn't that what we're praying for? That God would produce these in the hearts of men through the preaching of His Word and that multitudes would be saved even in our day. We pray indeed that it would happen. And I pray for some of you even in this room that it would happen. That you would feel the weight of your sin. That you're guilty before God. That you stand in danger of judgment. And that God would produce into your hearts sorrow. And that sorrow would lead to repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.